This morning's scripture reading is taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. In the blue, in the blue pew Bible, it can be found on page 1004. Again, the text is Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26, found on page 1004 of the pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Thank you, Brian. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to be able to feast upon your word this morning. Father, we need it so much. Father, we come as those who are discouraged, uh, frightened, fearful, uh, as those who are disillusioned by perhaps failure, uh, Father, uh, alone. Father, we come uh, struggling to have hope. And Father, we, uh, we, we, see, we seek your light. We seek your life. We seek your wisdom. We seek your welcome. Father, we seek uh, correction. And we ask that you would change us. Father, it is just so difficult. It is impossible even to change ourselves. And so we come this morning, Father, desiring to, to eat at your table, to partake of a feast, to actually, even this morning, to, to partake of the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would send your Spirit now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that perceive and understand that we might, live, that we might leave as those who are equipped to enter into your mission field, to serve you and love you even when it's hard, to love others even when it's hard, to lean not on our own understanding, but to trust you with all of our hearts. So, Father, please, would you be present this morning? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. How many of you sometime in the past week have said the following three words? I love you. Most of us probably have. Raise your hand if you said, I love you in this past. Yeah, I love you. We say that all the time, right? What, what, what did we mean when we said those three words? I love you. And why, why do we say them? <clears throat> have you ever stepped back? We talk about love. We said those words all the time. Have you ever stepped back and actually said, time out? What do we mean by love? What is it actually that we're talking about when we speak of the idea of love. Even when we can't really define it, we can often feel that it's there. 
A pastor friend told me about an experience that he had. He had a young uh, couple in his congregation. This was in uh, rural Illinois area. And this young couple, probably late 20s or so, um, one Friday afternoon, the husband was working. There, there were you know, a fairly modest, low-income household. And the husband was working at a, some sort of factory or something like that. And someone wrongly blamed him for something. And in response, he got angry. He got really angry. He was trying to defend himself. And in his anger, he did some regrettable things. And he ended up getting fired uh, because of his anger. It was a Friday afternoon. He left work. He called his wife, told her what happened. And then guess where he went straight from there? To the bar. Right? And over the weekend, he spent what little they had, either at the bar or on other diversions. They were living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, just didn't have a lot, and they didn't really spend their money very wisely. And that Saturday, he came home late Saturday night, and that morning, he slept in, his wife and his kids, two kids, got up, went to church. Uh, they, they had attended church off and on. And uh, when, when she got home, she, when she came home, she asked the minister <laughs> to come home with her. Imagine what it would be like to be that young man, to walk out into your living room and to face your wife and your pastor. Think about that. Getting out of bed, walking down the hall. My pastor friend remembers him walking into the living room collapsing into the chair and just sobbing. Wives, what would you say to your man in that moment? What do you think he was expecting to hear from his wife at that moment? And my pastor friend recounted just in awe about how she came over and placed his hand on his shoulder and reminded him of the good she loved in him. She told him how she admired his sensitivity and care for their two kids. She reminded him of the ways that he made her laugh and of the moments their family treasured together. She listed the people in his life who believed in him. And at one point, he threw up his hands and said, Stop, just stop. I don't want you to love me so much. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it strange? I mean, who does that? Listen, brothers and sisters, listen. Real love, true love. I don't mean true love from from fairy tales. I mean like real, sincere love is an absolutely beautiful thing. It's just jaw-dropping. There's nothing else like it. And not only is it beautiful, it's rare. It is so very rare. But just as love is very beautiful, listen to this, the absence of love is so ugly. So ugly. There's a well-known minister and author, uh, who I think is still alive today, Presbyterian minister named Frederick Beekner. In fact, we read a book of his together as a, as a, 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 um, for a book um, evening and book discussion evening, and it's called Telling Secrets. In the book, he struggles with a number of just difficult tragedies in his own life. And he speaks at one point of his mother. And his mother, he says, was a beautiful woman. Listen to what he says and how he describes his mom. 
He says, to be born as blonde and blue-eyed and beautiful as she was can be as much a handicap in its way as to be born with a cleft palate. Kids know what a cleft palate is? Sometimes children are born and their, their upper lip is separated. It's a cleft palate. Why in the world would it be a handicap to be blonde and blue-eyed and beautiful? What in the world is he saying? Well, he says, because if you are beautiful enough, you don't really have to do to be anything much else to make people love you and want to be near you. you don't, listen to this. You don't have to be particularly kind or unselfish or generous or compassionate. Why? Because people will flock around you anyway simply for the sake of of your beau what's that, your French, your, 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 your beautiful eyes. My mother could be all of those good things when she took a notion to, <laughs> right? Uh, when she wanted to be all those generous, kind, whatever. Listen to this. But she never made a habit of it. She never developed the giving, loving side of what she might have been as a human being, and needless to say, that was where the real suffering came. Two failed marriages after the death of my father. The fact that among all the friends she had over the course of her life, she never, as far as I know, had one whom she would in any sense have sacrificed herself for, and by doing so might perhaps have begun to find her best and truest self. And he goes on to say, she had the most cruel and terrible tongue when she was angry. When she struck, she struck to kill. Now he mentioned the death of his father, right? Two failed marriages after the death of his father. Do you know how his father died? When he was 10 years old, his father peeked in the room to see his younger brother and him playing said hi. They went down, and again, it was a November morning, went down to the garage, turned the car on with the garage door still closed, and waited until the fumes took his life. What's it like to live with lovelessness? ugly. It's tragic. It's even lethal. Now, we may be thinking, okay, this is a sermon about love. I got it. I'll try harder to love people. There's a lot at stake. I get it. I'm, I'm doing my best. And that might be a good thing, right? I mean, that's, that's fine. But after all, listen, we all know we should love others, right? We all know that. And that's not really true. I mean, I've actually come across a number of people who are like, you know, this whole love thing, nope. And I think it's especially true among young persons today that they think of love as either unrealistic or old-fashioned. I can think back to my time overseas when I was, doing, I was in grad school and I came across a man who uh, was, uh, he was a doctor and he was living with his girlfriend and son in the same flats that we were living in and I remember talking to him about his relationship with his girlfriend, and he said, listen, he said, I give it mo- at most six, to, I, said, I give it around six to eight years, 10 tops. So that's the most you can expect from a relationship these days. 
And we can criticize it or judge it. On the other hand, we can go, you know what? Look around us. How many relationships are lasting? How many marriages are just doing really well? Just love seems so difficult. It seems so unrealistic when we actually look around us. We actually look within us and say, you know what? Do I really have the ability to do this? And in a sense, this doctor was right. Because it's, listen, love, real love, true love, is extremely difficult. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say what? You ready for this? He would say it's impossible. That is, apart from the Spirit, love, real love, is impossible. Now, I want to just turn to the left real quickly to the book of Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew's Gospel, to chapter 3. So I want you to see, understand, well, I want to place this conversation, this, this discussion of, of uh, love in the context of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, because it's so important. In Matthew chapter 3, it's on page 829 of your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 3 in verses 11 and 12 this is John the Baptist, and he's speaking to the, an Israel who is deeply, deeply compromised. He's speaking to a people of God who have profoundly lost their way. He is calling each and every one of them to repentance. He is calling a people of God who generation after generation after generation have not been able to get it right. And listen to what he says in in your pew Bible, 829, chapter 3, verse 11. He says, I baptize you, he's speaking to the crowds, I baptize you with water for repentance. And that water has a twofold significance. It speaks first and foremost of cleansing. That's what we do is water. We cleanse someone. But the cleansing isn't just for the sake of cleansing. You don't just, you don't just pull a, you know, a knife out of, out of the, the dishwasher and clean it and then, then put it away. Usually you pull it out of the dishwasher to clean it in order what? To use it in some way. So the, this water stands for cleansing, but it also stands for setting something apart for use. The, 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 word, the big word is consecration. You're consecrated. You're saying, okay, this is now special. It's for a special purpose. So the, the water was for, was for cleansing and consecration. He says, I am here to baptize you, to call you to a different path, to repent, which simply means to turn from one, one direction, one trajectory to another. Instead of going east, to repent means to do an about face and begin to go west. Are you with me? See, so I baptize you with water for repentance, to cleanse you, to consecrate you. But you know what? You've been going east this whole time, and there's a reason you've been going east, because that's where you want to go. But now we're called to go this way that maybe we don't want to go. How in the world do we do that? Where do we get the power, the strength to do that? Well, listen to what he's, he's not done yet. Listen to what he says. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you, listen to this, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Spirit being the one who gives power, who gives wisdom. So you've got the water that cleanses and consecrates. And you've got the Spirit 
who gives capacity, who enables. Got that? Does that make sense? And this fire is, is, is the idea of refinement. That not only do I need to be made capable to do something, there are things that need to be cut off. <laughs> there are some things that need to die. And the fire is there to refine it, to, to burn away the chaff, to burn away what is unwanted. Listen to what he says. It's so beautiful. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's saying, this one is coming to empower you, and if you're not on board for that change, there will be wrath. And so Jesus called God's people, listen to this, this is so important, to be a people who are every day turning away from their former direction to a new way of life. Who are not simply, if you will, going with the flow. And that notion of going with the flow, both listening to the voices within us and listening to the voices around us and simply following, going east, whatever it may be, going in that general direction and listening to those voices, believing in those voices, embracing them, that the Apostle Paul will call the flesh. We talked about it two weeks ago, but I want to refresh your memory because to understand this notion of love, I want to make this contrast between flesh and spirit. So what's the flesh? It's simply going with the flow. To be more, a little more technical about it, it's this idea of being governed by appearance. Turn back to the right, back to the Galatians, to what the, 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 the passage that, um, <clears throat> that Brian read for us. Galatians chapter 5. And we see this in verse 16. So important here, okay, as he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 16, again, this is page 1004-1004 in your pew Bible. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, that is, in the power of the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not, so that you are not to do whatever you want. And then skip down to verses, uh, so then you see in verses 19 uh, through 21 that that Paul lists the various acts of the flesh. This is what it looks like to go with the flow. Then in verses 22 and 23, he lists the fruit of the Spirit, and that's what we're talking about over this summer, the first one being love. And it's first for a reason, because it's the most significant, the most important one. And then in verse 24 and 25, he writes... These words, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Again, the notion of flesh is very very important to understand. It is life governed by appearances. That's why it's called flesh. It's how, it's, it's just, from a flesh is that aspect of us that is our appearance. This is my flesh. You can see me, you can identify me by what is visibly the case. And if you live life by your senses, by looking around and thinking, oh, uh, this is just how it's done. This is how people live. This is how the world works. And you embrace that. That is what Paul calls living, walking according to the flesh. That is to say this, 
the flesh, to walk according to the flesh, is to look at the world around you at what's normal and can consider it to be normative. Got it? Let me give you an example. Kids, I want you to understand this. It's so important. Let me give you, last week I read from this book, Fraud and Togue Together. I'm going to read another story because I want you to understand what the flesh is. And the very last, uh, very last story here is a book. Excuse me, a, the very last uh, story in the book, excuse me, is a book called The Dream. Are you ready? Listen to this, okay? So for you listen to the end, you got this, okay? Um, um, Alex, you with us? Listen to this. Listen to the story. It's called The Dream. And you remember Toad and, Toad and Frog are the two main characters, right? So we'll talk, you can, hopefully you can kind of see. Now in this story, it starts out this way. Toad was asleep. And he was having a dream. He was on a stage. Oh, isn't that neat? He's on a, you can see him on a stage here. Can you see that? He's on a stage. And he was wearing a costume. Toad looked out into the dark. And Frog was sitting in the theater, in, this, in a chair in the theater. And then a strange voice from far away said, presenting the greatest toad in all the world. Toad took a deep bow. Frog looked smaller as he shouted, hooray for Toad! The strange voice said, Toad will now play the piano very well. Toad played the piano, and he did not miss a note. Frog, cried Toad, can you play the piano like this? No, said Frog. It seemed to Toad that Frog looked even smaller. Toad will now walk on a high wire, and he will not fall down, said the voice. Toad walked on the highway. Frog, cried Toad, can you do tricks like this? No, peeped Frog, who looked very, very small. Toad will now dance and he will be wonderful, said the voice. Frog, can you be as wonderful as this, said Toad as he danced all over the stage. There was no answer. Toad looked out in the theater. Frog was so small that he could not be seen or heard. Frog, said Toad, where are you? Still, there was no answer. Oh, Frog, what have I done? Cried Toad. Then the voice said, the greatest Toad will now shut up! Screamed Toad, Frog, Frog, where have you gone? Toad was spinning in the dark. Come back, frog, he shouted. I will be lonely. Yeah. Right, Sophia? That's right. Oh. I'm right here, said frog. Frog was standing near Toad's bed. Wake up, Toad, he said. Frog, is that, is that really you? Said Toad. Of course it is me, said frog. And are you your own right size? asked Toad. Yes, I, I think so, said Frog. Toad looked at the sunshine coming through the window. Frog said, I am so glad you came over. And Frog said, I always do. Then Frog and Toad ate a big breakfast 
And after that, they spent a fine, long day together. Do you see the flesh in that story? Yeah. What's the flesh? Is it wrong to play the piano? Yeah. I teach all, our, all four of our kids are in the piano. Are play, they're in piano lessons. Is it wrong to play the piano? Is it the most important thing in the world? What's next? What's he's on a, a high wire. Is that right? What's the next thing? Kids, remember? He's on a high wire thing, and then he dances. What else does he do? Right? He's wonderful. He's amazing. He has all these things. That the world, I mean, how many, how many parents, they want their kids to play the piano, they want kids to dance, to play sports, to be smart. All of these things the world says are so important. These are the values of the world, and they have their place, but they take an ultimacy, a primacy, that they become first. And you go with the flow. You embrace the standards, the values of the world, and it's so deceptive. So what does a loving parent do? According to the flesh, make sure their kids are in, are successful. Make sure they have A, B, C, and D, whatever it may be. I know one a college student who said that her, her parents, in high school, her parents put something up in front of her desk that said, the more you learn, the more you earn. Right? So I mention this because Paul is saying you, the Christian is called to actually listen, to ignore, to defy the voices of the world, to ignore the flesh, to not walking according to the desires of the flesh, and to turn and go the other way. And what does that look like when it comes to love? This is so important, gang. Now listen, because I think there are so many of us as spouses, as parents, as friends, as coworkers, as classmates, that we have affection for people and we love them in a way that the world calls us to love. So, for example, my friend gets in, uh, listen to this. Those of you who are in school, one of your friends starts doing something that you know is illegal, that you know is wrong, or you know that will hurt them. But because you love them, what are you supposed to do? Just let them do their thing. Hey, you do you, as long as you're happy. But is that really love? Or is that cowardice? Is it self-protection? And so it makes us ask, according to the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, what does love look like? I mean, this won't take long. Listen to this. Here is the Scripture's definition of love. It's twofold. Love involves treating another according to their worth. Treating another according to their worth. Listen to this. So their worth in terms of both their potential and their plight. See, when I love someone, I come into the situation and I look at them and I see how has God made them. Look at with what, what wonder, sense of awe, and how God has made them, regardless of what the world says. They may not have the world's criteria for value or worth. But love, listen to this, love sees another person. It sees them. Remember, we began our call to worship. And what does it say about God? Is I love you, for you saw my affliction. You knew the anguish of my soul. You saw me. Or Abraham's, Abraham's wife, Sarah, her, her maidservant, Hagar, 
She's, she's cast out by, by, by Sarah. And that's nothing. It's just her and her child. That's it. In the wilderness. And God comes and provides for her. And, and what does she say? You saw me. That true love recognizes the worth of another. And again, let me contrast this. I didn't say the worthiness of another. Go back to that story of the wife who sits down next to her husband, places her hand on her shoulder. A husband who's just lost his job, who's just spent their last dollar. And what does she choose to focus on? Was, would there be a time to talk about what he had done wrong? Absolutely. But first, she capitalizes on his worth. He is made by God. He has all kinds of things going for him that God has given him. So love, first, treats another according to their worth. Not their worthiness, according to their worth. Both their potential, I see what you could be. I see what you can do but also their plight, recognizing, oh my goodness, you have been through such hardship, such trial, such difficulty. I'm so sorry, and it comes in and weeps with them. So first, love treats another according to their worth. But second, and this is so important, because look, gang, even, even when I treat you, even when I recognize who you are, when I see I want to love you, I see your worth, I want to care for you, how many of you, especially as parents, Maybe as a spouse, you love them. You love your child. You love your spouse. But guess what? You don't know what it looks like to love them, right? Knowing what love looks like can be so difficult. We're so confused. How do I love my teenage child? How do I love my adult child? How do I love my spouse who's struggling in this situation? And therefore, it's not simply enough to love someone according to treat them according to their worth. We have to treat them, listen to this, according to God's wisdom. Love treats another according to their worth and according to God's wisdom. Let me share with you a story of kids speaking of piano lessons. When I was a kid, my parents forced me to take piano lessons. And then when I was in fifth grade, I don't know, fifth, sixth grade, I just, I made, I dug my heels in so badly, I made their lives a living hell. Be just saying, you cannot continue to make me. It's like, it's like you know, this is like a, a, a human rights violation to force your kids to continue to take piano. And because, hello, God's, I'm a God's sense of humor. I'm now a pastor today and I'm and a teacher because I'm persuasive. I was very manipulative and persuasive as a kid, and, and I still am. Ask Sarah. Where I can be very manipulative with my words. And I was able successfully to convince my parents to stop sending me to piano lessons. And I was like, yes, it's the greatest thing ever. Now, of course, today I look back on it and what do I wish? I wish my parents had forced me to keep taking piano lessons. Listen to this, kids. I didn't recognize what love looked like. See, the amazing thing about love is often as the, as the one who loves and the beloved, neither one may have the wisdom to know what love really looks like. My mother had a brother, and my, so my, my mom's dad grew up very, very poor. Went off to war, served in World War II, 
came back from the war, went, to GI, went on the GI Bill, went back to school, finished off. He was in the Army Corps of Engineers, so he had a lot of civil engineering background, was over there in the, in the European theater building bridges and doing all kinds of amazing things. He comes back, comes back to Washington State, and he starts a construction company. And he has a boy and a girl, and my, the girl was my mom. And you know what he did is he did very well for himself, very well, construction, building bridges all over the state of Washington. And because he had nothing as a child, Guess what he wanted to give his son and daughter? Everything. And especially my mom's older brother. And he did. He gave him everything. Shiny, brand new sports car, 19, early 1960s. And when he crashed it, guess what he did? Well, guess what his father did? Went out and bought him another one. Is that love? So I'm asking you, do you have the wisdom to know what love looks like? And again, the definition of love, treating another according to their worth and according to God's wisdom. So that's the definition of love. Quickly, the nature of love. What is the nature of love? What will it involve? It involves two things. Listen, it involves being committed. It involves commitment. You can't just love and take it away. Real love, true love, is commits itself, stays committed, it's all in, it's committed. So first is commitment, and the second, listen to this, is cost. Love will always cost you something. In fact, the, 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 the straight, most straightforward definitions of love in the New Testament are all revolve around, guess what? The crucifixion of Christ. In fact, most of you know John 3.16, but you, you know 1 John 3.16, which says... This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So love, true love, will always, uh, always involve commitment and cost. So what, is it, what does love look like? What does it look like on a daily basis? Here are some W's I'm going to give you to help you discern what love looks like. Okay, it's in all its various forms. Love says the following things. First, love says welcome. Love is always welcoming. It says, welcome. Come on in. Welcome is this, love is this wonderful inviting thing that brings people in that says, you belong here. You are, you are, um, you are someone whom I want to interact with. So love says, welcome. The second thing love says is, wow. Wow. Look at you. Look at you. Look how God has made you. It's beautiful. So love says, welcome. Love says, wow. Then love says this, I'm with you. So that's the commitment part. I'm with you. I'm here. I'm present. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to climb into the slime with you. But love, so love says, wow. says, welcome. says, I'm with you. But love also says, listen to this. <laughs> love says, watch out. Watch out. See, sometimes our beloved ones are in danger. Parents, our children are in danger. Our friends, co-workers, really, they're, they're in danger in some way. A brother and sister in Christ is in danger. And we don't just say, well, that's their problem. We actually say, time out. Don't you understand? You are in trouble. And we do so not in this looking down sort of way. We do so with tears. We do so watching, watch out while we're weeping. We say, you were made for so much more. I see your worth, and this is not what God meant for you. 
Love says, wow, this is welcome, I'm with you. It says, watch out. And then it says this, watch this, watch this. What does that mean? An example. Love always leads by example. Watch this, just watch my life as a father, as a husband, as a brother and sister. Lord, just watch my life. Love is this example. And of course, Christ is our supreme example. And I'll give one more thing. Love can also say, what if? What if? Love often casts a vision. Hey, well, what if? What if you did this? What if instead of wallowing in, in this, what if, what if instead of just you, know, you pursuing this, this life that is just, so, gonna, just only going to be self-destructive, what if you did this instead? And it casts a different vision. What if in following going west your whole life, I mean east your whole life, you actually decided to go west? And let me finish with this, gang. If that's the definition of love, the nature of love, if the definition is what? To treat another according to their worth and according to God's wisdom. If the nature of love is to be, is, is, involves commitment and cost, why would we love if there's so much cost? If there's so much loss involved? Where, what, what gives us the strength, the ability, the motivation to love? I mean, what are we to do? We look at love and we think, all I see is loss. And there are some of you, listen, that you've said, I've, Bruce, I've tried love. I've tried loving my spouse. I've tried loving my children. I've tried loving people. And I just got thrown under the bus again and again and again. And so it sounds nice. It's a great idea, but it's just not the real world. It's just too costly. Well, I'll tell you what, I feel you. I really do. But there are days, I just, in the last two years of my life, I have struggled with apathy more than I ever have in my life. It's just like, you know what? If I'm the only one who's going to care, forget it. I'm so done being the one who's going to love because no one else seems to care. I really do. It's just like, you know what? Everyone's just kind of here for show. Is anyone else really wanting to love? Listen, here's what we're to do with the loss. True love, spirit-filled love, knows there will be death, but believes in resurrection. That's what makes it the Holy Spirit-filled love. Different from affection from this world, whatever. True love believes that on the other side of death, on the other side of loss, is unforeseeable, unexpected, incalculable blessing. You can't, so often when it comes to love, you can't connect the dots. You can go, oh, okay, I see how it's going to work out for, for my good. No, listen, true love, Holy Spirit-filled love, new creation love always says, listen, God, if I lay down my life here in the future in a way that I can't see, God is going to provide for me. God is going to care for me. And I can't see it. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I believe in the God of the resurrection. That at, at the very heart of Jesus' message is what? Though you, in order to, if you lose your life, you will gain it. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. At the very center of Jesus' life is that what we just read in Psalm 31, uh, Psalm 31 for our call to worship. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Listen, you cannot love if you're not willing to lose control. 
and believe in a God who raises the dead. Otherwise, it's just pointless. It is absolutely pointless. To believe in a life of love is to say, listen, I'm going to love my life and go down failing and believe that God, in his time and in his way, will bring about resurrection. What is love? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is a meal of love. It is a meal in which we taste the love of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. Brothers and sisters, how, our world today, our world today is a world in which there are so many people who have no idea what they're worth. They hate themselves. They are so lonely. They have no idea what they're worth. The world has told them that they are worthless, and they agree. And the mission of the people of God is to go to wade in, losing control, wading into their lives, and to say, wow, to welcome them, to, to celebrate them, to say, you know what, I am with you. And what if, what if we went west in, instead of east? Why don't we follow Jesus together? Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father.